Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live and our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, follow the ethos that we should treat movement as a lifestyle, not just an activity. I finally had the opportunity to get part two of my interview with Eric Chesson of Autism Fitness. Eric does something different and better than other people in the movement fields. He's got a niche training people to work with individuals with autism, training parents on tips to work with their children to get them moving, and educating all of us who are involved in the movement field. I think you'll enjoy the interview with Eric. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. Today we have part two of our interview with Eric Chesson. Eric is the owner and founder of Autism Fitness. This is actually the second time I've done this interview, and Eric was very gracious when I had to email him the night that part two was supposed to be released on Moving to Live and tell him that I had somehow managed to switch files and then lose his original file and he was very understanding. took us a couple of weeks to get it scheduled, but I'm really happy to be able to talk to him about what autism fitness is, how he got into it, because if you remember back to part one, which we will link to in the show notes, he talked about his experiences growing up, coming from being a, essentially, in his words, a fat kid to finding fitness, finding weightlifting, and how he kind of uh, accidentally fell into the awareness that there was the potential for a career concentrating on working with individuals with autism. So, Eric, thank you for your understanding of my screw-up the first time and your willingness to talk to me for a third time. Uh, ben, working with the autism population, mo most of my professional life is spent repeating the same thing over and over, so it's really not that much of a challenge. Thank you. <laughs> so I guess my first question I always want to ask people. Yeah. Yeah. I, who I'm interviewing who work with individuals with special needs, we throw a lot of terms around. You hear people being called autistic. You hear people being said that they're on the spectrum. What exactly is autism? So autism is a neurobiological disorder whose origin is both uh, genetic and 
environmental in, environmental science in the epidemiology in as much as the the research shows there might have something to do um, with and this this is only preliminary research right now uh, with pesticides I don't know if there's any relation to um, uh, to plastics or um, a, any any other uh, environmental insults that that uh, epidemiological uh, from the environmental perspective science is still relatively new and when you're talking about a sample size or a population of over a million people who are diagnosed with autism plus you're talking about this extraordinary range uh, that constitutes autism we're not talking about just one thing in addition to that the myriad uh, genetic factors that that play a role so for example interestingly a, a higher percentage of individuals on the autism spectrum who have parents who are in the tech area or who have um, a a vast array of mathematical or computational skills so there's certainly a, a genetic factor to it as well and then two of the more uh, of the more recent studies, I don't know if they've been replicated yet, are demonstrating a higher incidence in uh, women who are overweight during pregnancy and women who have high fevers during pregnancy as well. The main characteristics of autism are difficulty socializing or social initiation, um, repetition in behaviors, repetitions in, in activity, low uh, muscle tone or low general strength and um, and repetitive motions uh, poor or or a deficit in motor planning and motor patterns we see a lot of gait issues we stay see a lot of trunk stability issues and uh, often cognitive complications as well now part of that is uh, receptive language skills which can differ vastly from productive language skills. For example, a lot of my athletes, uh, I have to prompt them pretty intensively to get one or two word answers. Whereas if I give them a full sentence, meaning four to six words, they can understand what I'm saying. So we have to always differentiate between what is the productive language versus what is the receptive language. Do they understand what I'm talking about right now? Which is why being consistent with labeling and cueing is so uh, so important. The other characteristics of autism are rigidity in scheduling and in activities. So an emphasis on sameness. A, a lot of our population will have difficulty if a schedule is changed, if something is off, if there if a person is in a room that that they shouldn't be. So it's kind of a hyper awareness and a hypersensitivity to regularity to, to things to things being the same. There's also a deficit in play-seeking behavior. So I call this the playground test, whereas if I take a bunch of equipment, and I've done this plenty of times, I take my hurdles and my sandbells and my medicine balls and my cones, and I bring them to a playground and just dump the bag on, on the blacktop, uh, kids ages two through uh, six or seven will just gravitate towards it naturally. They want to play, they want to explore. We don't see the same thing with the autism population, so they may not 
manipulate or engage with their environment the same way that a neurotypical individual does, which leads to some of the complications that we see with uh, implementing fitness or adaptive physical education programs, whereas kids naturally want to play games with children or, or young individuals on the autism spectrum, that play-seeking behavior isn't there. It's a skill set that we have to develop similar to socialization. Um, so we're looking at deficits in not only physical and, and adaptive or behavioral and cognitive skills, but also in seeking out new stimuli in the environment. I'm curious. One of the things you mentioned throughout that is one of the traits or one of the symptoms or things that you see are gait issues. How yeah. much of how much of that in your experience is related to the fact with all of those other factors that you mentioned that they may not have the movement opportunities when they're young children to develop uh, motor skills simply because they're deemed, for lack of a better term, different or yeah. autistic. So it's like, well, that's the autistic kid. So let's put him off in the corner, even though he might benefit not only socially, but also uh, physically, if ways were figured out when they were very, very young to work on the motor skills. Yeah, there, there's a, a couple of contributing factors to that. So one, as you pointed out, you have the, uh, the lack of interventions or the lack of opportunities to move. And you also have, don't have a population that's seeking to move as well. So you have on, on one side, you have that delay or that non-existence of that play-seeking or, or physical activity or vis- uh, vigorous physical ap- uh, activity-seeking behavior, and then you don't have a lot of programming that's going to satisfy those needs or engage those individuals. I also have, it, at, at least from my experience with my athletes and the athletes that I've assessed or, or worked with for limited to long-range periods of time, that crawling is a big issue. A lot of our athletes did not crawl. So you're missing out on uh, all of that hip mobility. You're, look, you're missing out on trunk stability. You're, you're missing out on the initial locomotive pattern, which is where I think we get a lot of the trunk stability issues, a lot of the postural alignment issues, because they didn't have that measure or that mark of physical ability was never satisfied. So unless we go back and reprogram, or program for the first time, those skill sets, they're not, the point that I like to make a lot, I don't like to make it, but I I wind up making it a lot, is none of these things are going to appear just by way of an athlete or an individual getting getting older. So just because they turn 12 doesn't mean automatically, oh, now they're going to have trunk stability, or now they're going to have proper range of motion from the shoulders, or now their gait pattern is going to clear up simply because they're bigger and older. Uh, It's something that goes across the lifetime. In fact, in my experience in working with athletes uh, as young as four and a half and as old as uh, 55, the only real difference that I see, other than the fact that with a larger body, you're going to get more overall muscle mass, is my older athletes have, have had more time with less movement and more time with faulty or problematic or compensatory movement also. So these are things that don't clear up on their own. And that's a big deal when we're talking about the implementation and and the necessity of fitness and adapted PE programming, because these are not things that just out of convenience are going to be eradicated. I'm curious. I know that for individuals who have uh, motor deficits and neural problems that when they 
I'm thinking people with uh, spinal cord injuries who do rehab and redevelop some movements, often they are, they have to continue to work to maintain that movement. Do you find with the athletes that you work with that as they improve, that if they stop for a period of time or take time off, that they regress faster than somebody who is not autistic? That's a really good question. I, I think with this population, you need a lot more intervention, which is perfectly, it, it makes sense also because, you know, in our programming, we're never doing max effort anything. So it lends towards a, a, lot, of, a lot of practice and a lot of repetition too. So we're not fatiguing our athletes. We're, we're not doing, you know, like an 80% of max effort type of program. So they need a lot more in order to develop the movement skills. And in losing them, it depends what the rest of their day looks like also, but I know if they're not getting um, regular physical activity training or regular adapted PE training that meets their needs, then you're, you're going to see that you're going to see regression in the same amount, if not more, uh, if not quicker time than you would with a neurotypical population, simply because they're starting at, at a greater deficit than even a, a detrained person um, in the neurotypical population would be. I know one of the things that when I did this interview the first time, and it also is very uh, obvious now, which I like, is you refer to your clients as athletes. And I know in the movement field, there's always an argument between the people who train quote unquote, hardcore athletes who are competitive saying, well, if you're not trying to personal best, if you're not competing, then you're not an athlete. You're just a physical activity person. Can you talk a little bit how you decided or made the decision that, look, the people I work with are athletes, which I happen to agree with. If you, if you move on a regular basis, you're an athlete. Yeah, it's two simple things. If you move on a regular basis and you're progressing at it, you're an athlete. And if I call them clients, I sound like a lawyer. <laughs> Spoken like a true New Yorker. <laughs> That's, yeah. So you told us in our first interview a few weeks back the fact that you kind of fell into working with individuals with autism kind of backwards. You were working on a master's in psychology, and one of your classmates came to you and said, you're a personal trainer. Do you have any interest in doing this? Yep. I'm interested in how that progressed to you being able to say, you know what, there's a niche for me working with individuals with autism, training people to work with pe people with autism, and training parents how to deal with their children who have it. Because if you have three children who have no cognitive or neurological deficits, and all of a sudden you have a child who has autism, that's going to be a huge difference and a huge change in how you deal with that child, even though every parent likes to say, well, I treat each of my children the same. Mm -hmm. Sure. I... It's, it's funny you say that because at one of the last uh, level one certifications that I did here in New York City, I had a young man, we were having lunch, and he said something to the effect of, it, it, it's amazing that you know you had this plan and that it carried out. And I said, dude, there's, there was no plan. This was, it all just happened organically. And I, I understood enough that I was able to develop something out of it. So after I started working in that, that initial program that you alluded to 15 years ago, and I'm still working there, that's a, a small um, life skills program that I'm, I'm part of in, in Manhattan that's affiliated with uh, Johns Hopkins Medical Institute. 
And so from there, I, I said, all right, well, maybe there, there's more to this. And I forgot how it happened. I think I, I wrote a couple articles for a local parenting magazine, or I might I don't remember ever taking out an, an ad, but I put some kind of listing, some kind of information out, and I was contacted by a uh, board-certified behavior therapist who said, hey, I usually do early intervention, so that's program, that's behavior program and, and life skill programs for children typically three and under. She said, I just took on these two cases. They're two 12-year-old boys, and I have no idea what to do with them. Do you think you can do something? And I said, yeah, I think so. So it, it just so happened that this – uh, this situation worked really well, and I started implementing fitness programs for them, uh, and it it converged really well with the uh, the ABA training that I was uh, that I was undergoing. In fact, one of those athletes I'm still working with. After you and I finish up this interview, I'm going to be going to his house and working with him. He's uh, 23 now, and I've been working with him for uh, wow over over 12 years. Um, so it's, it's definitely a, a long-term process and a long-term relationship with a lot of my athletes. So from there I started writing cause I, I, um, I'm pretty good at putting my thoughts down either on paper or on a keyboard and just started writing about what exercise interventions or what programming made sense for this population. And in the beginning, my writing was really, really technical but people still, it, it resonated with people too. So I started speaking at a few conferences and my, my first couple speaking gigs were, um, th th there was certainly a lot lacking with uh, my timing and, and the, the uh, amount of time I, uh, I, that was allocated to me versus the amount of information that I had. As as my career went on, I started working with more athletes, starting doing more assessments, got the opportunity to work in some adapted PE environments, which was crucial for uh, creating situations that worked or programs that worked for groups also, because you're going to have such a wide variance in physical, adaptive, and cognitive skills with groups. And I, I think the big secret about phys uh, adapted physical education is if you look at general PE, how often do you have a class of 20 or 25 or 30 neurotypical or norm normally developing students that all have the same level of physical prowess, who all have the same level of motivation, who all have the same cognitive abilities? You're never going to find that. So I, I think the real fault of physical education is that we've managed to lose so much of the educational component of it. And in adapted PE, I saw just from my experience that what was happening is that became a uh, microcosm or a reflection of what was going on in general PE. So where it started becoming units of sports, like, oh, we're going to do a basketball unit. We're going to do a soccer unit. And then you go observe that in an adapted PE setting and it's just chaos. Like there's nothing actually happening. There are soccer balls on the floor. There are two nets, but nothing of substance is actually occurring. And, and my, I suppose litmus test for everything is the question, what do you say you're doing versus what is actually happening here? And that's where I, I really started uh, formulating, it, you know, the, the concepts and the practices and, and the methodology of autism fitness, 
because what makes sense programming things from a sports-based perspective and getting nothing done or, or just teaching towards the most motivated individuals or approaching things from a movement perspective where we can say, all right, well, everybody squats or everybody can press something overhead to some relative degree or everybody can, can do a crawling pattern unless we're talking about, talking about some severe uh, muscular deficit, which we could get into also. But if we're looking at the fundamental tenets of, of human movement, well, then we're just talking about scalability. So how do you progress it? How do you regress it? Well, you can do that for a class of everybody, right? So it's making fitness accessible, which I think comes back to the idea of, of calling everybody an athlete, not because I want it to look good or I think it's novel, but because if they're moving on a regular basis and getting better at it, then it's true. That's interesting. I interviewed somebody for my other podcast uh, a few weeks back and she started running uh, four or five years ago and she and her husband to help raise awareness for a charity that her daughter was involved with ran uh, as a tag team. They each ran about 12 to 15 miles at a time between Washington DC and Pittsburgh over 14 or 15, maybe it was 11 days. Anyways, they each ran about a half marathon a day. And during the course of the interview, she was saying, well, you know, even though I still run and I do marathons and I want to do a ultra marathon, I don't really consider myself an athlete. I had to say, if you do that, you're an athlete. Yeah. And I, and I think there's something, there's a stigma for anybody who didn't play a sport in high school or college to really take ownership and say, look, even though I go to the gym, even if I go to the gym three times a week and I don't quote unquote compete in an event, but I'm working to get stronger or I'm working to improve my cardiovascular fitness, like you're meeting the goals of what most athletes meet. Well, then you have people who stopped playing sports in high school who still call themselves athletes. Well, that's a, that's another, that's another story that we could get into. I, I actually interviewed another individual, which we had a, a good laugh about the fact that if you played intramurals in college, probably the most serious athletic events in your life were those you know, intramural basketball games. Hmm. So you find that there's this niche, and yep. there are people all over the country doing various things related to movement who they're known in their hometown as having or their city or maybe their region of having their this niche. I'm thinking, you know, there's always in, in a city, if you're a physical therapist, there's always the back specialist or there's always the knee specialist. Mm -hmm. There's always the personal trainers like, oh, you're a football player. You need to go to this personal trainer. Yeah. How did you decide to expand beyond saying, okay, I'm going to work with individuals with autism in the New York area. How did you expand beyond that to say, you know, I think this is something that other people can benefit from, whether they're parents, whether they're teachers, whether they're other personal trainers. I think this is something that I can begin not only presenting, but developing a actual program where people are going to say, hey, Eric, come to Croatia and talk to us about autism. Yeah, I don't recall a specific instance or situation where they, I, I, I can't recall a light bulb moment for that. I think as I continued to write about it and create programs, I, it, it was, everything just seemed like the next step and it wasn't a hundred percent linear, but it was, I would get invited to speak at a school or I would get invited to speak about fitness as a, at a conference. And then I liked doing that. So I said, all right, well, let me seek out other conferences. And, and then I would have people who would want to do uh, consulting calls or observe my sessions or parents who wanted me to consult um, distantly or, or, you know, via, via computer, or via email. 
for them to create a program in the home. And then I would get other personal trainers who would contact me and say, oh, I didn't know anybody was doing anything like this. Or I have the, the most common one for years has been um, I just had a parent who asked me to work with their, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 year old son or daughter. And I really want to do it, but I don't know a lot about autism. And I Googled it and I found you. And I've had that happen over and over and over again. And it wasn't, I, I am very transparent about the first five years of my career, not being, um, not being this roller coaster of, oh, I launched autism fitness and then everything got really popular. It wasn't until the last few years that it really started to take off. So it wasn't an overnight success thing. Not that anything is, it was continuing to put out good information, continuing to work with my athletes and developing that reputation also. And I said this on, on a call with our level one certified pros yesterday. I'm less concerned about being known for what I do than being known for how I do it. Because you can say, oh, I work with this niche population. So I, it's autism fitness. Obviously, it's autism and fitness, which sounds really good, but I don't care much about that. What I care about is people understanding that we have a, a, a specific way that we go about doing things that, that breeds success because it's replicable. So it's not just me doing this one thing with a magic wand here in New York. It's something that we can, um, we can really develop on a global scale. And that's what, that's what we're doing now because we're taking sound concepts, methods, and strategies, putting them together in a way that makes sense and that's scalable and just repeating that over, over and over and over. I wouldn't say, I would never say that every single strength and conditioning coach or every personal trainer is a perfect fit for running an autism fitness program. Absolutely not. I don't want everybody, but I, I want those people who really have an affinity and have the skill set for this to be involved. I know one of the things that you mentioned when we were chatting before our first interview, as I said, it sounds like a lot of the things you were teaching are useful for any fitness professional, whether they work with individuals with autism or they don't. And you said, well, good coaching is good coaching. Yeah. And it was kind of driven home to me when I accidentally posted the wrong podcast for part two. And uh, a friend, a uh, colleague of mine who's a chiropractor said, you know, I was really looking forward to listening to that interview because I don't work with patients who have autism, but I was thinking some of the things that Eric does potentially could be tips or ideas for me when I work with a difficult patient who doesn't listen well or doesn't understand how to move when I'm trying to teach them exercises. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. And what's funny about that, too, and I I, um, I mentioned this in a – I forget whether it was a conversation or an email exchange that I was having the other day. When people point that out, and it's true because we're talking about – you know, human behavior, obviously the human behavior that is exhibited among the autism population can be a lot more uh, nuanced and, and interesting than we see in the neurotypical population. Although not a hundred, not a hundred percent of the time, you know, being from New York, the things that I see on a subway ride from the Upper East Side back to, uh, back to Penn Station in five stops, um, I, plenty of my athletes exhibit much more behavioral restraint and 40% of the people on on the E-Train. 
But what I was pointing out in this conversation was I work specifically with the autism population. Autism fitness is obviously about the ASD population and the concepts and strategies that we implement work. It doesn't mean that they're not generalizable to the neurotypical population. But if I called my business fitness for everybody, I'd be homeless, right? Because there's not everybody. So we, so that's why it's niche, but do the concepts work for neurotypical or, or for people with other developmental disabilities? Yeah, I, absolutely. I'm curious. I, I know from looking at your webpage that you offer a number of different things. You offer an autism fitness certification. And I think what's very interesting about that is you specifically say on it, it's intended for fitness professionals, therapists, educators, and parents and caregivers. And then I also see that you offer a uh, parent's workshop. What would be the difference for a parent who's looking at this? They have a child or maybe it's somebody who, who has a niece or a nephew. What would be the difference between taking a parent's workshop versus saying, you know, I'm going to get the autism fitness certification? Really good question. So the majority of parents that I've worked with actually go through the full uh, certification, and a lot of them are fueled by wanting to bring this work to their sons and daughters, but also wanting to expand on that. And they're, um, they're adamant about bringing this to as many individuals as possible. And one of the great things about them is they already understand uh, th this population. To a, to a really good degree. And a lot of the things that we cover in the certification resonate with them, even if they're new concepts or even if they're concepts that they've heard before, just taught in a, in a different way. I would say that the biggest difference between those two courses, um, we don't always offer the uh, Try This at Home workshop, but it's a three-hour training. And that's if you, as a parent, just want to take the initiative to introduce fitness in the, in the home, with your son or daughter. I say child, but some of our parents have children who are 23 years old, and that's awesome. Uh, it, it's a great introduction to the work. It's not, um, it, it's comprehensive enough that you get a few of the exercises, you get a few of the strategies, and it's a great starting point. So you can leave that session and start implementing immediately. The certification is for people who are either um, already working with the population in a professional setting or want to take this and, and develop it. I've, I've had more than a few parents, multiple parents in, in the same level one certification who have wanted to take this work and develop a, either a facility or a program in, in an existing facility around it. So we, the goal with autism fitness is to be the leading educational and training provider for anybody who's, running this program, whether it's in a, um, a speech clinic or a PT, uh, an OTPT clinic in an adapted PE setting, it's, it's the ed education and the, um, the training model or the methodology that needs to be able to fit anywhere. And our goal is to make this the standard for, uh, adapted PE and for, uh, for fitness for the autism and special needs population because it's comprehensive and at the same time it's scalable replicable and we can also take data on it as well so there's a measure of external validity that's built into it we're talking with eric chesson of autism fitness he's been telling us a little bit about the certification program he had 
has not had, still got, still ongoing, still Keep certifying. <laughs> I'm curious. I know I had the opportunity a couple of months back to interview Andrea Leonard, who does a similar type of programming for individuals who've either had cancer or are currently having cancer. And we talked a little bit about the different types of fitness certifications are out there, ranging from the ones that literally you get online, give them your credit card number, and you can print off a PDF certificate. And voila, it's about 5.15 now. At 5.20, I can be certified in any number of fitness fields versus something that's a little bit more extensive. What does it take if we've got a fitness professional listening to this? They go to your website. They see that, okay, this is a, a training. What does it take to uh, go through the, the certification that you have for autism fitness? We get a lot of requests via, via email about, can I get certified online? And I bring this up halfway through day one of, of the certification, and people just laugh. Because once you're in it, you realize how much information there actually is and how much it is a, an experiential type of, of learning. When you're talking about putting together the physical aspects of, of the programming and then how do we provide positive behavior support to individuals who might run across the room or try to try to bolt out the building or fall to the floor and refuse to get up. And then the cognitive component of how do you prompt someone who may not want to be touched or how do you convey complex verbal information by using two or three words. Uh, the One of the one of my favorite probably in my top five pieces of communication that I get from people on a regular basis was your exam was the hardest fitness certification I've ever taken good we, we want a high barrier to to entry and so in addition to uh, when people register for the level one certification, they go through the guidebook, they go through the autism fitness toolbox, which is our, our online learning component. And then they spend the two days immersed in the certification. Then they take an exam that is both multiple choice and short answer video review and video submission. So our level one attendees have to submit two videos of them taking the athlete of their choice. And it's been really cool because some uh, parents or, or therapists have used individuals on the autism spectrum in their, in their videos. Some use uh, colleagues, some venture even into more dangerous territory and use spouses or uh, significant others. And we, I need to see, and our level one exam graders need to see that they have a working a, a legitimate working knowledge of the concepts and practices in order to get certified. And that was my hesitation in developing a certification um, two years ago is I didn't want it to just be another one of the 350 or 400 certifications that's now available. And, you know, when, when people, um, have a point to make about it, Oh, like, Oh, it's expensive or, Oh, Oh, it's, you know, we can't do it online. Good. That's my bar to entry. If, it, if it's not worth your time, then great. Then it's not worth our time. I'm always remembered when people mentioned expensive theaters. Yeah. There was a uh, bike company manufacturer named Keith Bontrager. And in regards to bicycle parts, he was well known for saying cheap, durable, and lightweight. Pick two of the three. So I kind of have transferred that to education and said cheap, good quality, and long-lasting. Long Pick two yeah. of the three. Yeah. 
So if there's a level one, mm -hmm. either there's also a level two or there's a level two in the works. And how is that a proceeding? Level two. So our level two is, I, I plan to have level two completed by the end of 2019. And that's predicated on getting a lot of feedback from our, uh, our level ones. And it, it, it's funny, it reminds me of an email we got recently asking, well, you know, since uh, we were talking about an international travel, and uh, since he's teaching level one, could we do level one one weekend and level two the next weekend? Now, after you pass level one, the real questions and the real education comes after you start practicing it. So we've built in um, the requirement that you have to be practicing with at least three athletes for a year before before we start with level two. So right as of right now, I'm starting to write the curriculum, which is going to be a lot more technical on the on the programming, on the exercise progression and regression side. Uh, from what the our level two candidates need to demonstrate, number one, uh, presenting one of those try this at home workshops for parents and caregivers because it gives them some speaking experience and it positions them as an expert. In, in this field, which is what we want. Two, they are our exam graders. So as we do more of the level one certification trainings, we need more people to, to grade the exams. And much as it thrills me to grade seven exams in a row, after a while staring at a screen, I, I want the person I grade first to have the same amount of attention as the person I grade sixth or seventh. So it makes sense. And the feedback from our level ones has been uh, overwhelmingly positive as far as the grading process too, is they're actually learning more about the program from grading it or, or they're uh, remembering or recalling concepts or strategies that they forgot about after the level one training. So we have the, uh, the try this at home workshop that they're going to be leading. They, we have the, uh, the grading, we have content submission. So submit, videos and articles and pictures of your athletes and strategies and programming um, that that you're using as well. And um, and fourth is also contributing to our uh, our body of, of work, whether that's submission to uh, the autism fitness toolbox with videos or even doing some interviews and um, among 22 certified pros that we have throughout North America. Our goal for 2019 is to develop leadership from within uh, the autism fitness uh, certified community. And that includes, you know, the ongoing education, the business development, because part of what we're looking at doing is, is enabling our certified pros to create successful businesses and, and not for people to be saying, oh, you know, I, I struggle doing this, but I love doing it, so I'm going to keep, you know, doing it. I don't want anybody worrying about paying their rent or paying their mortgage. I, I want them to be successful so they can move on to doing more, um, both for this community and, and in their own lives. Yeah. I know a mutual friend of ours, Eric Malzone. That's his goal yep. is to change the fitness field to realize that, look, this is a viable profession, not something that's a fun job or something you do on the side when you do your real job. 
Yeah, and, and I think Eric does a wonderful job of information dissemination. He's a very engaging writer and, and speaker. And I think his podcast has done a lot. From what I've seen, he's really developed a great community. And in, in fitness, it's easy to find, or at least my experience, it's easy to find camaraderie in the strength and conditioning or in the fitness world for the amount of infighting there is, for the amount of arguing and for the amount of um, ego stuff that goes on. You know, you, you, you find someone in the room who lifts stuff and, and you resonate on that. For people to really develop a successful business out of that takes more acumen than you get from just uh, knowing your programming and, and knowing how to work with your athletes. And I think Eric does a, a really good job and, and, and he's really adept at filtering out what's going to be valuable, valuable information uh, for trainers who, who want to develop their businesses. So rather than say, oh, well, you just have to believe in what you're doing and, and you have to have the mentality of a six-figure trainer. It's like, no, give people exacting steps rather than jargon and fluff. And if they can execute them, then they can have a successful business. We've been talking to Eric Chesson, the owner and founder of Autism Fitness. He's done a great job of explaining to us why he started Autism Fitness, starting from how he fell into it to how he's continued to develop it. Look in 2019 for the upcoming Level 2 certification. Check out his website. We'll have extensive show notes. And I think Eric has done a great job of picking a niche. It's often said, if you're going to do something, do it differently or do it better and I think it's very clear from listening to the conversation that he really strives to do it better than other people. And I think having a niche of working with individuals and, and educating individuals to work with individuals with autism makes him doing something different. Eric, I want to thank you for joining Moving to Live for a repeat of session two or interview two. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.